Hello and welcome to the Albion Obsessed podcast. You have joined us for this special edition where myself and Joe will be speaking to author and journalist Spencer Vignis, author of such books as The New One, Eric and Dave, as well as Bloody Southerners, Clough and Taylor's Brighton Hove Albion Odyssey, and A Few Good Men, the Brighton and Hove Albion Dream Team. I hope I haven't missed any Brighton-based books off there, Spencer. No, three books is 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 probably three too many. Some people would say, but um, but yeah, not not me. Clearly not you two either. And um, hello, guys, and hello to everybody else out there. Yeah, yeah, yes, the latest of uh, well, I suppose it's a trilogy. I've done it now, haven't I? Yeah, it's um, it's it's really good. Um, and we're going to hopefully pick your brains about your new release, Eric and Dave. Uh, in just a little bit. But Spencer, before we dive into that, we'd like to know a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Um, So whenever we have a guest on Albion Obsessed, we always like to ask them three very important questions, don't we, Joe? Fire away. We we certainly do. Um, So the first questions for you, Spencer, is do you remember your first Albion game? Ah, now in my head, it was Leicester City at home Goldstone ground this is going back a few years february 1979 but that's what i always thought but a couple of other people who i knew at that time you know ex-friends well no still friends you know old friends and whatever um we used to go as part of our football team warn and bucks we always used to go um you know kind of most saturdays for home games and stuff and a couple of people i'm still in contact from those days reckon that it was probably earlier than that. One of them swears I was at the Boxing Day game in 1978 when we thumped Cardiff 5-0 and Teddy Maybank got a hat-trick. So in my head, it's still Leicester City, clear as day, but other people kind of um, care to differ, basically. So I'm going with Leicester, but I don't know. I'm getting to the stage in life now where I've forgotten more than I remember, so I, I, I wouldn't take that as kind of gospel, tell you the truth. Fair enough. I guess it's the first one. Question one, haven't I? Basically, already. (laughs) I guess it's the first one you remember. So we'll accept Leicester at home then, Tom. I think. Yeah, I think we certainly will do. Uh, Perhaps an easier one now. Then Spencer is who is is your favourite Brighton player of all time? Oh, okay. Straight straight off the top of my head, it was Peter O'Sullivan growing up. Um, who I identified with, well, A, because he was brilliant, and I wasn't, not saying I was, but there you go, I identified with him more because uh, he was from Wales. And although um, my parents moved to Sussex when I was nine, basically from London, my dad was originally from Wales, so I had Welsh family, spent a lot of time there. And I'm talking to you now from Wales. I've lived back here for the last 16, 17, 18 years now. So Sully, as older fans will remember him, um, he always stood out for me. But another one, I've, I've got to say, it's probably a 50-50 split between him and Steve Penny, who was another kind of wide man uh, from the 80s, who, again, some older fans will remember. Um, Steve Penny was, uh, funnily enough, I've ju- I only just spoke to him yesterday because I still do stuff for, uh, for Albion's Match Day programme, as some, uh, some people may know. Um, and I'm um, doing a, a series this uh, this season called Sliding Doors about what would have happened in various, you know, situations if life had turned out slightly different, how it would have affected the album. You know the film Sliding Doors? 
Yeah, well, I, I haven't seen it. No, it's what it's what happens. What happens in one scenario if she catches an underground train, and what happens in another scenario if she just misses it? How her life would have panned out completely differently. So I'm doing that with lots of other, you know, lots of album scenarios. You know, what would have happened if Smith had scored at Wembley in 1983? What would have happened if Hereford had beaten us in 1997? How would our lives be that different from whatever? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, a mind boggler, that series. But um, Steve Penny I spoke to yesterday because when he first came on trial, sorry, I'm rambling here, but there you go. When he first came on trial with the Albion in 1983, he was one of two players who came on a week-long trial, right? There was him. Do you know who the other one was? Ian Wright. Yes, yes, of course. We took Ian Wright on trial, but we didn't sign him, which is why he then ended up with that lot up the road. With that lot up the road. And um, the, the, the reasons I've heard we didn't sign him is because we were so potless back there, basically. We could only really afford, you know, if either if one or either of them were any good, we could only afford to take one of them. And we took Steve Penny. And he was great and he was marvellous until he was more or less injured out of the game by, you know, he, he was such a great player that he became a target for the, the hatchet men, basically, in the 80s, who just kicked the living daylights out of him. But, yeah, if we'd have found 25 quid or whatever in pennies under the sofa, then we could have had them both. And, I mean, as, as fans of the 80s will remember, you know, they always say with, with sides who are going for promotion... From any league, this is. Albion were a Division Two side then, so the championship now. You know, you need a 20 goals a season striker, 20-plus goals. And Albion never had that in the 80s. Not even Dean Saunders, not even Terry Connor, who some older listeners will remember. They never got to 20 goals. But, of course, Ian Wright did for many seasons, for, as you say, that lot up the road. So that's a that's a what if scenario basically. What if we'd signed Ian Wright? So that'll be in the Forest program. I will be so, looking out for that. I I'm an avid buyer of the match day program, so that's certainly something I will be keeping an eye out for now. Normally I just flick through and I like it as a souvenir, but I'll actually I'll actually read those. <laughs> well, if, any, if anyone really ever reads a match program, you'll they'll know I'll you know I've written I I do a lot of the stuff in the program, most of the stuff in the program about old seasons and old players, you know. So uh, you know from right the way back as far as about the fifties, which leads you know that's the link to the the book in a certain way, but um. Yeah, I've been writing for the Albion programme since the old king was on the throne, let alone the new one. So um, yeah, people either like my stuff or it's like, oh, God, not that old kid who just writes about, you know, the pre-Amix days and what have you. So, Never. Yeah. Anyway, I'm you... rambling. What's no, we love it. We, we, all, we well, love a ramble. Fine, Spencer, that we love a good ramble on this show. And I'm going to ramble now as well. Um, just to, because you say about that, about well, what happened, what would have happened if. We chatted yeah, to yeah. Um, Brian Horton about a month <laughs> ago. And he was chatting about um, how his departure from the club. And he said he, he was adamant that if he had stuck around, if uh, Lawrenson had stuck around, you know, what could have been sort of oh, scenario yeah. season. Um, so it just, it just as soon as you said that, it just sort of triggered that conversation we'd had with Brian um, about that. So I just hope what you, what you were, you know, talking about you, that period you're talking about, 1981 and that summer where, yeah, uh, Nobby went, um, Laura went, Peter O'Sullivan finished with us, um, John Gregory, who went on to play for England, whatever. I just hope that's not a kind of... A t- <laughs> A mirror image of what's going on today. 
basically. I mean, it's that horrible, you know, it's, well, it's probably the same as you. I, I actually, I was down in Cardiff. I watched the Leicester game in a pub in the afternoon. I sat there rather smugly, surrounded by everyone else, going, you know, this is into uncharted territory, lads. This is, you know, Lord knows where we're going here. I almost felt like, I'm, you know, in the days that followed, I almost feel like I was on a game show. You know, on a game show where someone comes up, you know, to the poor contestant and says, oh, see what you could have won. You know, see what your life might have been. You know, see where your football club was going. And now we're just going to take it away from you. Of course, I hope it doesn't turn out like that. But that will teach me to sit there and with my arms folded, being a bit smug in a pub in South Wales, won't it, really? Honestly, I'm I'm such a, a pessimist in life. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to be more optimistic. Um, but I was sat there at the Leicester game and we scored our fifth goal. And I was thinking... Life can't get much better than this. This is this is top level. Like nothing can ruin my mood. And, and a you were right. <laughs> a, a, a good three days later, um, that happened. So that that serves me for being optimistic. Um, I think the advantage of having a receding hairline, and by that I'm talking about me, not you, Joe, is that basically you know being a you know a slightly kind of fan of the older vintage because you've seen it all. I mean, when I started supporting the album, you know. Brian Horton, as you just said, you know, he was our captain, fantastic. And Peter Ward was banging in the goals and we were on the up. And then we went down and then we sort of came back a bit and then we went down and then we went down a bit more and down a bit more and lost the ground. And then we started coming back. Then we went down a bit more and then we kind of, uh, it's, it's just, it's a never ending roller coaster, which is why I love the Albion. People, you know, I've got friends who support Arsenal and Spurs, you know, and stuff. And it's just no variety there of winning. We haven't won a trophy this year. So what, you know, I've always said, I've always said, and I can say this to you lot, all right, and everyone listening, you're never a proper fan, a proper fan, until your team has been relegated. You know, that could be from the Championship to League One or League Two or out of the Premier League. Once you've been relegated, you know what it's like, you know. You, then you can say, yep, you know, you've you've experienced the highs and the lows. But until you've had a relegation, nah, I don't think so. Which is why basically, you know, it's all these you know, kinds of Premier League teams of, you know, Everton and stuff and whatever. Actually, I like Everton. I shouldn't I shouldn't pick on Everton. I, I do like them. The Spurs, all these whiny Spurs fans, you know, it's like oh. when yeah, I first yeah. started supporting football, Spurs actually were in the old division two in the championship with the Albion. We had a famous game against them at the Goldstone in 1978, which basically has to be up there with the Somme in terms of biggest military battles ever seen kind of in Western Europe. And so I look back and laugh now, but I mean, at the time, oh, it was, yeah, not fun, not fun. I can imagine. So, uh, yeah. 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 Was that um, question three or not? Have we had question three? We haven't. We haven't, Spencer. But it's. I think question two was fantastic. I think that what an answer. I think that's probably the my most my favourite answer we've ever had for question. I can't even three. remember what question two was now anymore. I've rambled. So <laughs> favourite player. Favourite players. Oh crikey! Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was it. about two years ago. You asked me that, wasn't it? <laughs> Honestly, question we we three, we wouldn't be a. We wouldn't be a podcast without uh, us, our love of rambles. So don't you worry about that. Go yeah, that's true. As many, we're here as for many tangents as you like. And it's true, no yeah. secret on this podcast that we, me and Tom especially, absolutely adore football shirts. 
Um, and I've got my collection behind me there um, yeah. of all of the um, Albion shirts through my years of, of being on Earth. So from 95 right to now. Um, yeah. But what is your favourite ever Albion shirt? Well, 78, 79 or the late 70s, the, the stripes. You know, I mean, back then you couldn't get replica shirts anyway. You couldn't buy them. So, you know, the only way to wear an Albion top was basically to play for the Albion which for 99.999% of us was just, you know, unreachable. Um, I got a soft spot for the British Caledonian one, I suppose, which was the first sponsorship one. I remember being bought that for a Christmas in about 83, 82, 83, I think, or something. I've still got it somewhere in a box. Haven't got rid of that one. But, yeah, I'd say the late 70s stripes every time. Yeah, that, I've got that... nothing to add to that. I've gone from rambling to there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, that shirt is um, that shirt is actually how we got Brian Horton on the show because I own a match-worn uh, Brian Horton shirt from '78. We posted it on Twitter, and he was he really? saw it. How yeah. did you get that? Um, I just I was luck of pure luck of the draw. I found it um, from a, a guy in Malvern um, who sells football shirts, and he just had some match-worn shirts. And I went and I looked, and I needed it. I've also got just rambling i've got a match worn 1983 from hans cray jr uh shirt as well needed it tom or wanted it come on now uh, definite definite need joe definite need hans cray my god there's a blast from the past lunatic. look <laughs> lunatic up in the dictionary and it'll say yeah hans cray. good god i used to have a pair of football boots from danny cullick and i didn't even get them off him it was i was at shrewsbury final day of the season I'm a sports writer, but I wasn't working that day. I was there in a pure beer and football capacity. What was this, early 21st century when we went up from what's now League Two? And a friend of mine who was a Shrewsbury fan burst into, apparently, into Albion's dressing room and said, look, one of my, you know, a good mate of mine is outside. He's an Albion fan. I want a souvenir from one of you. And Danny Cullip handed him his football boots. So um, I took them. They went all around Shrewsbury that night. The following morning, I gave one to an old mate of mine who's an Albion fan from the late 70s as well, one of my oldest, oldest friends, Gareth Clark. I don't know whether he's still got his. I'd love to say I've still got mine. I think I still have, but I'm not sure. That was a lost weekend. Shrewsbury beat us 3-0. It was one of those... It was the end of... When was it? Bobby Zamora's first cracking season, right? And we won the league in about February, or it felt that way. But the problem is, is that all the games towards the end of that season, we were just diabolical. We just couldn't hit a barn door because everyone was just on the lash, I think. So, you know, Halifax away, Carlisle away, Shrewsbury away. We just, I don't think we had a shot in any of those games. It was just appalling. But the highlight of that was visiting some great pubs, meeting old mates and getting Danny Cullip's boots and losing them as well. So, yeah, but I tell you what, even Danny Cullip's boots, Remarkably small as well. Danny Cullip, you'd think he'd have a size, he'd have presence. Well, he did, but small feet, clearly. But that doesn't come anywhere close to Brian Horton's shirt. I, I bow down before you, sir, with that <laughs> one, quite frankly. Uh, it was, um, it's, a, it's one of the prides of my collection. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Um, so, Spencer, let's talk about your life as a sports writer. You just mentioned there that you're a sports writer. Um, how did you go about becoming a sports writer? Was there a particular drive from yourself to tell the stories of sports um, men and women of the past? Um, 
you know, what, I'd, what drove you to it? I'd love to say yes, but no, absolutely not. I wanted to be a war correspondent. I think I, um, you know, it was like the early 80s, you know, I, I decided I was going to be a journalist or I wanted to be a journalist. And there was loads of films being made at the moment about the Vietnam War and Cambodia, you know, films like Killing Fields and stuff. And a lot of them featured war correspondents. And I thought that looks glamorous, you know, not knowing, of course, that the casualty rate amongst war correspondents is huge. So I did end up becoming a journalist, but I and I've done just about every part of journalism since then, apart from foreign correspondent, war correspondent work. You know, I started off as a junior reporter in the Thames Valley, did a bit of business, did entertainment journalism. That was fantastic. Got to spend a year in Los Angeles doing all of that, did features, and then kind of just became a freelance. Was basically working for you know when I'm working for yourself, but hiring yourself out. And that's when sport came into it. Um, I'd been living in London. I moved up to Yorkshire. I had a 10-year stint up there. Uh, and um, when I went, I spoke to a few editors who I knew and said, look, if I was up there and I was going to be doing football games, would you use me as a Northern correspondent? And enough of them said yes. So I ended up, um, did a lot of work for, you just make it up as you go along, really. I say that, not the work, but the contacts, really, and, and the job. So I did most of uh, a hell of a lot of work for the West of England papers. This is back in the days when regional newspapers had huge readerships. So the Western Morning News, I used to do rugby and football. I was basically their man north of Birmingham, really. And then worked for the Observer for many years, as in the national paper as well, covering northeast England. So Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, all of those papers. Uh, but it wasn't just football. Yeah, I did quite a bit of rugby, still do quite a bit of tennis. Uh, the grass court tennis season. Um, I still do that. Done every Wimbledon since about 1922 or whatever it is now. So, uh, yeah, so I just, I kind of drifted into it, really, and still there. So, and the books kind of started as well during, you know, you always think you, you know, always think you've got a book in you, but I think the amount of journalists who think they've got a book in them and they start writing it and after about a thousand words, they've said everything they're going to say. And of course, you know, Average book is about 75,000, 80,000, 90,000 words. So journalists are taught to say things, you know, quickly, succinctly, punctually, you know, not ramble for 90,000 words or whatever. But I did my first one, and that went well. Just gone from there, really. And, yeah, three of them happened to be Albion-related. And we're Amazing. pretty well served. As a club, we're pretty well served with books. I don't know whether it's just – I don't know why that is why we've just got, you know, quite a few authors, you know, who happen to be fans as well. Um, but, yeah, there's been some good books about the album over the years. So, yeah, I'm in good company. Good company indeed. I take my hat off to you because I've, I've always wanted to, to write a book and, and wanted to I'm, – I'm, I pride myself on being quite creative. Um, and sometimes my creative mind is like an overload and I just want to blurt it out into words. Um, but I've never, ever, like, carried on. Um, so if, if you had any advice for somebody who wanted to to write a book, what would that be? Make sure that nobody else has written the book that you've got in mind first. I think, you know, it's it's you've got to really want to do it. You've got to make sure there's enough material there and that you don't run out of steam after a 1,000 or 2,000 words. But I think, yeah, there's also, you know, that, that horrible feeling in the back of your mind, even when you start a a book even after you've done all your research and you've got to do the research first 
when you start those first couple of chapters in the back of your mind you're thinking well this is a good idea i like this i'm hoping other people like it has anybody else ever tried this before or been sued or is there a reason why they can't write it or is there another book out there and it just didn't do very well or whatever so i think make sure that your idea is fresh that it's novel i mean well say for instance my last book about the album before this one was to do with Brian Clough's time in charge of the album. And I mean, there's been books galore about Brian Clough. So, you know, part of me was thinking, well, are people going to pick this up and say, not another bloody book about Brian Clough? But then again, no one had done it from the point of view of the album. You know, everyone, if you know, focused on Derby and Leeds, you know, and Nodding Forest and more Nodding Forest and more on Leeds and whatever. And the most fascinating bit, I, you know, I love Clough in many ways. He's a bit of an oddity, but I, you know, I'm very fond of him. But the most fascinating bit of Clough's CV was why, in God's name, somebody who had won the equivalent of you know, the Premier League with Derby would then, his next career move would be a club towards the bottom of what is now League One. It made no sense whatsoever, and yet nobody had touched that side of his career with a barge bolt. It had been there in one or two. Jonathan Wilson had done a good book, his biography. Um, yeah, biography about Clough. But even in there, you know, it was it was about a 400 page book and it was maybe 15 pages, if that, 10 pages about Brighton. So, yeah, that was that was a, a fresh take on an old subject, the Clough one, really. So that would be my advice. Make sure it's something that no one's done before and make sure you have enough anecdotes and material that it'll actually stretch to a book and not a magazine article. What would your book be then, Joe? I have I have no idea. I've I've dabbled in so many things like fantasy or um I'm I'm a massive Walking Dead fan, but there's so many zombie apocalypse books out there and you 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 can't write an, an original uh, horror book because everything's been done as you, as you've said. That's what I've always found the trouble and I always get to a point where I'm like I read it back and I'm very self-critical, which yeah. is a, a big downfall of my myself. I'll read it back and I'll just say, nah, that's rubbish. And I'll, and I'll bin it for, for like a year. And then the next year I'll be like, oh, I want to do another one. And I just never find the motivation, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I wrote a book, it'd be about a teacher who really loves wine. But, you and know, football shirts. You know like football that? Shirt. <laughs> I think I could make it. I think that'd be quite good. I think a lot of teachers would buy that. <laughs> um, but we're not here to talk about uh, my book. We're here to talk about your latest book, Spencer, which is, of course, this one, Eric and Dave, A Lifetime of Football and Friendship. Now, I've read this, uh, Spencer, and it is a really fascinating book, really fascinating read. And I think it's a real eye opener for perhaps younger fans to see what football was like, um, you know, you know, in the 1950s and the 60s and so on. Um, just wanted to pick up on one thing that you say, I think it was the very first line you said in the introduction of the book, which was that it was dangerously close to not being told their story. Uh, why do you think that was? Was that just because uh, no one had picked up on it or there wasn't a, a lot of interest? Well, it wasn't so much that. It was more my own, not mistakes, but I almost, well, I'll tell you the story. Basically, um, the book is about two ex-Albion goalkeepers who who in their days you know the 50s and 60s were were very well known and yeah you know among the top keepers in in the United Kingdom uh, the older one is Eric Gill 
who is now 91, he'll be 92 later this year, and the younger one, 84-year-old Dave Hollins. And this goes back to, it was about two, oh, over two years ago now, just as, as COVID was starting to kind of, you know, get its, its claws into us. And um, uh, as I've said, I write for the, the match programme, Albion's match programme, and we decided that we were going to kind of carry on doing the programme once football resumed, even though it was behind closed doors and, you know, no one was there. We decided we were going to still do it, basically. So I, ca I resume my interviews with ex-players. As I said, I interview people from, you know, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50. And, and I had a tip-off that Eric Gill, who basically made his debut for Charlton in 1951, before he joined the Albion. And he was Albion's keeper for our first ever promotion winning side, 1957-58. At a tip off, he was still alive and I was given his number. I phoned him up and he was chipper as anything. You'd, you know, he, he just sounded like any one of us. And he was razor sharp. And I, I said, look, how about we do a piece, you know, for the, for the program? He's like, yeah, sure. And he speaks with this, you know, London accent. He was born in Camden. Oh, you know, Camden when Camden wasn't posh or whatever it is now. You know, when London, you know, Camden was kind of a hard area. So we did a piece. Um, and um, during while we were talking, um, he happened to mention Dave Hollins, who had been his understudy at Brighton. And, um, you know, it was good and it was all great and whatever. And I went away, uh, went away and uh, while I was transcribing our interview and listening back to the tape, um, he said something that I'd missed at the time. And he, he said, oh, yeah, you know, Dave Hollins, blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, we're still in contact. We're still mates. And I'd missed it. And I, I, was, I was like, you know, looking at the tape recorder, listening to it, thinking, what? You know, because, I mean, this is a friendship that dated back to no November 19, what was it, November 1955 was when they first met. And I phoned Eric back and said, oh, you know, great talking to you, blah, blah, blah. But can I just check one thing? You said you and Dave Hollins are still mates. And he said, said something like, yeah, you know, I'm seeing him this weekend. We're going bowling. And it was like, <laughs> OK, fine. I said, well, do you mind, you know, will you give me Dave's number as well? So he gave me Dave's number and I spoke to Dave and I ended up doing another piece on Dave as well. And both of these pieces got really good, you know, feedback. You know, I had quite a few emails and messages from people out there saying, I love these two people, you know, and the fact they're, they're still mates after almost 70 years. And that's when the seed in the back of your mind, you think, yeah, there, there's something else here. So I thought about it put it the idea to the two of them how do you fancy doing a book and we couldn't do it because of covid we couldn't do it face to face which is how i'd normally do it i always find it you know you it's, it's sitting down face to face you get stuff that you don't you don't over the phone but yeah we all decided we were going to do it so we sat down did loads of interviews backwards and forwards and talks and everything like that and i knocked it in shape and it went from there but the most fascinating thing i think is also in the introduction tom is that I mean, I when I first became an Albion fan, I used to go to the Goldston. I heard talk amongst some of the older fans about Eric, you know, this goalkeeper who had, without spoiling too much of the story, Eric equaled, he didn't beat it, he equaled the all-time record for consecutive appearances made by a goalkeeper in the Football League, which was 247. And the reason he didn't break it is, well, that's a story in itself, basically, he got flu. 
so he didn't he equaled it and didn't break it but that's yeah as i said that's another story but i heard stories you know from the older fans you know about this eric hill guy you know and he almost seemed to be somebody from like those chicken pate sepia kind of you know little you know chumley warner kind of films that you see and whatever you know kind of cartoon things and whatever and you think god did this guy really exist but the thing of you know eric you think what a keeper that's brilliant but part of me always used to think because i was a keeper a very bad keeper but i was you know it's my position and i used to think well if this eric gill guy played 247 straight games who the hell was the poor unfortunate who had to understudy him and it turned out that that understudy for about half of the time was dave hollings who had to sit and wait and wait and wait until eric just slipped up or got flu, or got bought by another club, or whatever. And the funny thing is, well, it's not funny, I can laugh about it now. When Dave finally got the chance, in his fourth game, he conceded nine goals um, away at Middlesbrough, and Brian Clough scored five of them. And that 9-0 game now is still our highest ever defeat. Middlesbrough's biggest ever league win and our highest ever defeat. So you'd think, you know, at that point, you know, Dave Hollins, poor old Dave, you know, he's hanging around for years, waiting for Eric to drop the ball, literally. And then in game number four, he lets in nine. You'd think at that point, you know, you'd get the message and you'd go off and do something else. You know, become a bank clerk, you know, join the Merchant Navy, become a soldier, you know, something, you know, safer bet or whatever. Join the military or whatever. And yet the incredible thing about Dave is that he ended up replacing Eric. He got a big money move transfer to Newcastle United. I say big money, eleven thousand pounds in 1961. That's a lot of money. I mean, it's large. It's small change now by Premier League standards, isn't it? So he got transferred to Newcastle. He became the Welsh number one goalkeeper. He made his debut against Brazil and Pele. And you just think, you know, talk about redemption. There you are, not getting a game anywhere, and all of a sudden you're walking out in front of a hundred thousand people in games in South America. And he had a long career, Dave did. And Eric had a long career too. And there's here we are, you know, all these years later, you know, 60, 70 years later, and they're still mates. So, yeah, I put the idea of a book to a publisher and they went, yep. And away we went. And, and how did you go about... How did you go about the research then? Did, was it all a, a sit down with Eric and Dave or, or was there much research that you had to do yourself as well? Or was it all from their stories? You know, it was funny. Was it, a lot of it was from their stories. Um, I'm lucky in that, you know, there are other people out there who've done, you know, uh, some of the hard yards, not for me, but they do it themselves. You know, I'm thinking Tim Carter, you know, the Albion historian, you know, that's easy to kind of cross-reference details with him. Um, there's also, you know, the wonderful resource, the Seagulls program resource, so you can double-check things there as well. But dare I say, you know, having been an Albion fan 40 plus years and writing about them for over 20 years, a, a lot of the stuff, you know, is is things I've come across before. And you have to write this down and catalogue it and, you know, computer files and whatever. So I, I had I'd done a lot of interviews and I had phone numbers for people who remembered those times. I'd done interviews with players, quite a lot of them now, sadly, not with us anymore, who who played at that time in the 50s and early 60s. So 
fortunately, I'd done quite a lot of the research, you know, myself, but most of it was sitting down with, with Eric and Dave, or not sitting, you know, sitting down virtually to start with, and hearing their stories. And the remarkable thing was, you know, you'd think, well, two guys who were, you know, 91 now and 84 going on 85, you'd think, well, there's going to be some holes in these stories. You know, when I go back and double check, there's going to be one or two, you know, things which don't stack up. And I tell you what, 99% of it all stacked up. Their memories are just razor, razor sharp. Um, which also brought it home to me. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about, is, is, is sadly about dementia and about, you know, the, the, the problems that are now striking football. And the saddest thing with Eric and Dave is that, I mean, they're great. Their memories are razor sharp, as are an awful lot of goalkeepers. You know, that can't be said of kind of the centre backs, centre forwards, people who, you know, headed the ball, those positions. But Derek and Dave, they weren't even really aware that there was a wider problem because they'd outlasted so many of their peers, you know, and ex-players who had died before we were really aware that there was a bigger problem here. The problem with, with dementia now is that you, you can't tell whether a football player actually has dementia until after they've died and you, you examine the brain for lack of, you know, it's, it's better terms and, and you have a look and see what damage is there. And this has only been happening really since Jeff Astle and, you know, since he came to light, uh, the West Bromwich Albion and former England forward. Um, and the campaign surrounding him follow his, you know, before he died and after, you know, he died. So, you know, Eric and Dave weren't really aware of it. It was only really when we sat down and they started naming players who they played with who towards the end of their lives weren't really there. And it's so sad because, I mean, the two goalkeepers at the Albion who followed Eric and followed then Dave, Charlie Baker and Brian Powney, you know, Charlie Baker's, I think he's 88. Brian Powney is, well, in Brian Powney is my head, is always about 50, but he's in his late 70s now. All four of them, Eric, Dave Hollins, you know, Charlie Baker, Brian Powney, if you sit them down, they are razor sharp. And they were all goalkeepers. So they weren't heading the ball. They can remember, you know, they're all falling apart a bit in various, you know, departments. They're all on blood thinning pills and whatever and stuff. But they can tell you, you know, they're like walking encyclopedias about football at that time. And that's, yeah, so I'm talking off the point now. I can't remember what the original question was here. But, but yeah, I just I just found, you know, basically Eric and Dave, they remembered it all. And I, I, I sat down with them and I, I had to do very little correcting, really. The stories were all there. The anecdotes were all there. I had to put them on a bit of context. One or two of the years were a bit wrong, or the months rather, but. It was, you know, that's my job as an editor and a writer is to knock all of it into shape. And it put it this way, the biggest tribute I, I can put towards towards the two of them is that the book wrote itself. You know, it was once I put it into the chapters and I knew what I was going to do, it wrote itself. And that's a tribute to, to Eric and Dave and, and their anecdotes. Yeah, it certainly flows very well. Um, as, I, as I've already said to you, Spencer, it is a really fascinating read, and I strongly advise everyone, you know, watching and listening to go and check, uh, to give it a read. Um, maybe I'm showing my age here a little bit, um, being <laughs> the ripe old age of 33, but there was a lot of things in there that surprised me, uh, perhaps the way in which players were transferred, how they found out about the transfers, a few things like when Eric um, was 
put into the reserves and he wasn't allowed to move on by Billy Lane, you know, stuff like yeah. that. That's that surprised so me. I, I tell you what, Tom, I'm, I felt the same. I've got a few years on you. You know, I'm 33 plus 20. And the amount I learned about it as well, about the way they were they were treated. I mean, at one point, I think it was it was Dave who used the word slave. We were slaves. And in the 21st century context, you know, you think, I don't know if I should use that. You know, is that a bit of a strong term and everything? But I, I decided to because that's the way they felt. And they were. When you strip it down, they had no rights whatsoever. I mean, players played on a year-by-year contract. If you had a bad season, you were dumped at the end of this, you know, of, of that year. Um, quite often, clubs held onto your registration forms just in case, you know, they didn't want to sell you to any other club, which is what happened to Eric at the end. You know, I mean, Billy Lane, basically, from what I can gather, you know, it's it's... He'd fallen out with Eric, but he didn't want to let him go and he didn't want him to make a success of his, his next move, which would have been Bristol City. Because if he did well at Bristol City, that would look bad on Billy. And that's what used to happen at clubs throughout the land, really. They were treated appallingly. And I mean, at one point, I asked Dave Hollins, you know, about like the modern day game. Did he, did he you know, resent Premier League players or footballers now, you know, getting the riches that they did? And he just said, well, you know, it, it has gone a bit crazy now. But he said, you know, essentially, no, I don't, because they're getting what we didn't. And when you put it that way, you think, yeah, OK. And that's why they had to go off and do other jobs afterwards. You know, you lived a year by year existence where basically you were also paid more in the summer and less. Uh, sorry, more in the winter during the season. Then when the season finished, you had to go back to a lower wage. If you were in, on the reserves, in the reserves, you were on a lower wage. So, you know, it could, life could get very competitive between the players then because if you weren't in the first team, your livelihood could suffer because you were in the reserves and you got a lot less money. Yeah. And that's one of the other more remarkable things about, you know, Eric and Dave. You know, I said about, I talked to them both about, you know, they talk about, or they talk now about this goalkeepers' union thing, the idea that all goalkeepers are in this unofficial union you know, bound by the knowledge that one mistake, basically, and you could get dropped and whatever. You know. And I said, oh, yeah, the goalkeepers' union. And Eric said, yeah, it wasn't always like that, particularly amongst goalkeepers at, at the same club, because if you if you lost your place, you were on less money and resentment could grow. But he said, yeah, Eric and, you know, Dave and I, you know, we were never like that. We were friends first and foremost, and we never let anything kind of like, you know, else come between us. But yeah, they were treated. I decided to keep the slaves term in because, you know, this is 60, 70 years ago and they were treated like slaves. It's 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 just inc- so it's an eye opener for me, Tom, as well, basically, as, as much as you. Yeah, it was um, it was huge. And um, just sorry, sorry, Joe, I just wanted to also mention about the um, the way in which goalkeepers weren't protected by the referee as well. Like as a modern day fact, well, relatively modern, I've been watching football for last 25 years or whatever it is but even so like you know the injuries that goalkeepers would sustain and the tactics that have to deploy to get center forwards to stop basically pushing them into a goal with the ball in their hands and concede stuff like that was just like it was just mind-boggling to to read about i think the the i mean in the end it reached a kind of uh, a watershed mark where 
Uh, there was an incident involving a goalkeeper. It wasn't an Albion goalkeeper, but Eric and, and Dave knew about it and had watched it at the time. And, and they both thought that basically the, the incident in, I think it was the 58 Cup final involving Harry Gregg, who was Manchester United's goalkeeper, and he got smashed into the back of his net by Nat Lofthouse uh, with the ball. He came, caught the ball, and Lofthouse just smashed him and the ball into the net, and the referee gave the goal. And it was, I mean, even by like, you know, 1950s standards, it was like it was caught on live TV and everything. And it was like, really? And I think there was a general feeling that at some point, if if we were going to televise games, at some point, a goalkeeper would get killed. Because goalkeepers did used to get badly maimed and on occasion, you know, die as a result of their injuries. You know, there's there's well-documented cases of of, of you know, of, of goalkeepers in England and Scotland who, you know, were knocked out and whatever, never recovered from their injuries properly. And I mean, both Eric and Dave, you know, were were smashed to bits by, you know, opponents. Um, so I mean, you know, it's it was it was a brutal business goalkeeping, and I think the reason why they're protected to the extent that they are now is, again, possibly because they were they were badly treated, you know, way back then. But that was part of the art, I think, to not get caught. So, yeah. you know, but yeah, they um, they had. I mean, Dave still has a rib that sticks out at the wrong, in the wrong direction, that just never mended from his days as a player. Wow. Um, and Eric as well, he had a couple of bad concussions towards the end of his time with the Abbey. Um, Gosh. So yeah, yeah, you know, who'd have been a goalkeeper in the nineteen fifties? <laughs> By the 60s, it was getting better. 70s, yeah, a lot better. So, but, you know, it was, you had to be made of strong stuff to want to go between the posts back then. Yeah, definitely. Um, and in the book, there's some, as you've already described to, to the listeners, so some like shocking stories, some inspirational stories as well. What would, would you, could you pick a highlight from the, the stories that Eric and Dave told you? Right. If, if if you were pressed, obviously, as I say, it's it's quite a hard. Oh, question. I, I don't know, Joe. I mean, it was it was like the. I mean the the nicest thing that someone. I mean, this book has only just come out. We haven't even had the launch yet. Oh, remind me about that because it's this Sunday, as well. But it has been out. You know, I'm recovering from a foot injury and and stuff like that. We couldn't have the launch until kind of like the end of September. I'll I'll give you the details in a minute. But one person who has already read it said. Um, said the biggest tribute was was like on, on every page there was a story and there's almost like 300 pages so there's a lot of stories in there i think going back to the brian clough link clough appears a little bit not just because he stuck five goals past dave once they both had running battles with cluffy you know i mean um eric had uh clough used to have this thing as a center forward where he used to kind of you know unsettle goalkeepers by trying to knock them off balance and trying to get them out of their rhythm you know and even now you see center forwards sometimes will come right up to a goalkeeper and will stand in their line of vision and try to put them off but Clough used to do things where he'd try and elbow or kick or nudge or or just to throw goalkeepers off their rhythm he did it with Eric and he did it with Dave and they both hated him for it they admired him as a center forward but he was a he was a bugger to play against Dave eventually got his revenge after he'd um, joined, left the album, joined Newcastle. Um, 
And Newcastle were playing away at Roker Park, Sunderland's old uh, ground, one um, one weekend. So it's the, the big northeastern derby. And there were no cameras there, days before cameras. And there was an incident or a moment in the game where basically um, Dave got the ball. Cluffy came up to him and was doing his old trickery again. And Dave thought, I've had enough of this. And he waited for the moment where the referee turned to run back to the middle of the field and the linesman turned to run up to the centre circle. And just at that moment, he he punched Clough, stiff-armed him right in the face and put him down. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, you did what? And some, you know, a fair, a fair proportion of the crowd saw it. You know, you've got 65,000 people in a northeastern derby and some people witnessed it and went ballistic. Um, but there were no cameras, no still photography or whatever. The only, you know... The, the only witness really were some people buying the goal and, and Dave and Cluffy himself. So the referee turns round, Clough's on the floor. Dave thinks, oh, bugger, I better go down as well. So he goes down on the floor. Uh, the referee runs up and it's like, well, what happened here? And Clough's like, well, he hit me and whatever stuff. Dave's like, no, I didn't. So the referee just starts, decides to restart play basically with a free kick to Newcastle. So Clough didn't even get a free kick out of it, let alone a penalty. And as they were going off the field, I think I think it was at half time as they were going off. You know, Dave kind of trots up alongside Clough and goes, "We're one all now." <laughs> that, and, um, yeah, it's a brilliant it's a brilliant story, and I, I it's one of those things that you know, as soon as you started telling it, it jogged my memory of the part. Of the story. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry, it's not even the best story. As I was telling that, I'm thinking, what about this story or what about that story? I mean, there are just so many in there. I mean, just listening to listening to Dave say about making his debut for Wales against Brazil and playing against Pele was just, you know, he describes this one moment where, you know, you, you hear people say, was Pele that good? No, he scored a thousand goals, but a lot of his goals were in exhibitions and blah, blah, blah. And Dave just said, oh, no, he wasn't that good. He was better. And he describes this goal that Pele scored against him for Brazil on his debut, where he almost, as the cross comes over, he almost jackknifes in midair to send the ball, to head the ball past him. And the guy he outjumps to send that header past Dave is none other than John Charles, who, you know, our generation, well, my generation won't have seen play, your generation won't have seen play, but John Charles amongst football buffs is basically, it, it's regarded as almost like the, the ultimate complete footballer. He was as good up front as he was as a centre-back, you know, played for Leeds. He was voted by Juventus fans not so long ago, only about 10, 15 years ago, as their greatest foreign player ever. And he played centre-back that day for Wales to kind of keep, Pele, the idea was to keep him in check, and even he couldn't do that. And Pele scored two that day. But this one goal, you know, just listening to Dave describe how the ball comes over, you know, South America, 120,000 faces, and the ball comes over, and he just rises and just jackknifes in midair to head this ball. And he said, the ball was behind me and hit the stanchion at the back of the goal and had come back out before I even knew it. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's a time and a place in history where, you know, it's, I didn't know so much about, you know, the 50s and the 60s. And, and he brought it to life and Eric brought it to life. So, yeah, loads of stories. And most of them involving behavior that now you just would not get away with, like that cluck stuff. You just couldn't do it now. 
Not that I'm condoning that kind of behaviour, but, you know, you've got to laugh sometimes. <laughs> you really do. You ha- you've got to laugh. And we talk about condoning behaviour, um, condoning behaviour by managers and coaches as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, the managers did what they did, but it was different times. It doesn't make it right, but, you know, they didn't know anything else. It's like why Billy Lane throws Eric out of the team and refused to transfer him. You know, why Dave was allowed to, uh, well, he wasn't allowed to punch Clough, but he got away with it. You know, all of that stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah, different, different times. And and I think what it also brought home to me is people say, oh, football's never changed. Yeah, it has, actually. You know, some of the rules have changed, you know, particularly involving goalkeeping, you know, and what you can do. You know, it's, yeah, there's a goal at one end and a goal at the other, but, you know, there's so much of it apart from that has actually changed. And a lot of it for the better. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I love, you know, my golden age of football is the 70s and the 80s, but I wouldn't want to go back there. 90s as well. You know, it's it's like, you know, it's, it's yeah. And, and, and funnily enough, out of the two of them, out of Eric and Dave, Dave is quite scathing about football and the way it's played now. You know, he says goalkeepers now, you know, goalkeeping, it's, it's goaltending, you know, they they have to play, you know, more like more like sweepers than goalkeeping. So, you know, he's not a big fan of the game as it is now so much. Whereas Eric, you know, as I said, it was 91, 92 going on. He likes it now. He says, you know, I would have preferred it now where a goalkeeper can actually go about their business and, you know, distribute the ball and throw the ball and kick the ball and, and act as almost like an extra defender. Goalkeeper can go about his business without fearing for their life or when they're going to get smashed by the next centre forward who's just a bit in the club. You know, he says there's more room now for goalkeepers to express themselves than there was back then. So he likes the game now, whereas Dave didn't. So that, you know, doesn't so much. So that was an interesting kind of contrast as well. Definitely. I've got definitely. no idea what your question was there. I've rambled again. <laughs> all right, how, don't am worry. Doing, how am I doing on the rambling stakes here? It's, it's all right. good. We're still, it's ten, all good. 10 out of 10. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. <laughs> Sorry, I so, Spencer, you mentioned uh, about you got your launch party this weekend. Um, am I right in thinking that's at the uh, the Bowls Club that uh, yeah. Eric and Dave go? Is that, yeah, is that right? They, yeah, they both live. I mean, Eric moved to, as I said, Eric moved to Sussex from from London when he joined the Albion. He never left. You know, he just he just loves it. He doesn't want to leave at all. Whereas Dave, you know, I mean, he went to the northeast of England and then Mansfield and other places and steadily worked his way back south. He ended up in Guildford and was an interior decorator in Guildford. And then before COVID, he moved back down to Sussex. So Eric lives in Peacehaven. Dave lives in Ovingdean. And um, they both, yeah, they, they, they both still play bowls. And their club is Denton Island Bowls Club in New Haven. Uh, so we're having the launch due this Sunday. Not this Sunday, sorry, it's the following Sunday, 25th of September on the Sunday at 2 p.m. And everyone's invited. So if you've got, to, you know, there's no there's no football on that weekend. It's, an, it's the international weekend. So if you're listening to this, Sunday, 25th of September, 2 p.m., come on down and meet a couple of old Albion legends. And there'll be some other Albion legends there as well. Brian Powney, as I said, who's the kind of, almost like the other holy trinity of old Albion keepers. He's going to be there too. So come on down, have a pint, get yourself a copy of the book. They'll be able to sign it as well and 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 just, 
yeah, enjoy being in the company of greatness. I don't use that word often, but they're, they're, they're an inspiration, these two guys. And um, the kind of, you know, that we, you know, you know, they're like we won't see again. So I don't think the two of them will. <laughs> they'll probably laugh as well. Make the most of them while they're still here. As Dave says, every morning I wake up and I think, well, that's a bonus. So, um, yeah, they'll be there that day. So, yeah, it should be good. Denton Island Bowls Club, New Haven. Well, there you have it, Albin Obsessed viewers and listeners. There you go. Definitely worth uh, a trip down there. I would if I didn't live 200 miles away. Um, Spencer, just before we um, we we uh, round off the uh, the episode here, do you have any projects uh, in your pocket for the future? Do you think you're going to do any more Albion stories, or as you say, is that your tri- is that your Holy Trinity done now? I don't know, actually. I mean, the one thing I might do at some point is because I, you know, I'm I'm. I'm fortunate. I mean, if I could go back to the 10-year-old me and basically, or 15-year-old me or whatever, and basically say, look, you know, over the years to come, you're going to do what you've done and you will interview and speak to an awful lot of the people who are your, your Albion heroes and your Albion greats. And you know, I mean, I'd be amazed. And I mean, that is the thing, you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed so many of them, so many of the names, you know, you name them, I've, I've I've spent time with them. It's just been a, a, an, an honour, really. Um, and I would like to put a lot of their best stories and their top stories together and maybe put them in a book. A lot of the anecdotes have never seen the light of day. You know, they're, they're pieces that haven't made the Albion Match programme. They're pieces that haven't made the books just because they didn't, you know, sit quite in what I was doing, you know. It would be discussing one thing, but it wouldn't be relevant for a book or for the particular piece I was writing or magazine article or whatever. So I think at some stage I'd quite like to do a, a book where I put them all, you know, in. Maybe start post-war and just go right the way through. Might do decades, might do eras. So that's a possibility at some point. But give us a chance, Tom. I've only just finished this one. I haven't even had the launch due for this one yet. So, you know, it's... Um... I'm sorry, Spence. It's because I've finished this one and I need something else to read <laughs> like, Next, come on, come on, another one, please. Come on, another Spencer, one. I like that one. I need come more. <laughs> no hanging no, about, that... you know, pull your finger out your backside. Another book, please. So, yeah. Well, when I do, you'll be the first to know. But no, oh, not yet. Well, I must say, Spencer, that does sound like a really interesting idea you've just pitched me there. And if I was a publisher, I'd be like, yes, please, Matt. Um, But no, it sounds fantastic. It might be something even that, you know, I might do with the club. I don't know. Do I want to do it independently? Do I want somebody looking over me saying, oh, you can't have that story. You can't have that story. You can't do that. I don't know. But as I said, that's one for another day, basically. Um, Yeah, for the time being, I'm focusing on this one. and. You almost get a glimpse into some of the musicians I've loved over the years, you know, and they have an album. When the album comes out, you know, they want to talk about that. And other people want to talk about other bits and pieces, but they're like, no, you know. And then they go out and tour. But quite often they're already working on the next project that's coming along. You can see how how it goes. You know, you can easily get distracted. But I think I'm at the point now where I just want to kind of, you know, live and breathe this book. It's uh, They're fascinating guys. They've been a, They've been great to work with during pretty testing times you know working with two people particularly of that generation during covid um yeah put things into perspective put it that way you know the measures that they had to take and whatever but they were also an inspiration you know them just saying well 
even in lockdown, we just go out, we'd have our quick walks around the block and come back. And they're still really active guys. They don't just bowl. I mean, go out, walk along the seafront any given day, you will either meet Eric or Dave with their respective other halves or all of them together. So, yeah, they're how to live. They're a template for the way to go forward, basically. They're just brilliant. That's absolutely lovely. Well, thank you very much, Spencer, for, for spending some time this evening, you know, chatting to myself and Joe about your, your book and your history as a fan. It's been uh, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. And, um, you know, I wish you all the best with the, with the launch of this book. Um, it is really worth a read, Albion listeners. Um, where can people watching. buy this, Spencer? Where can they where can they purchase oh, this online? And pretty pretty much anywhere. Um, Pitch Publishing, are the P I T C H Publishing, they're the publishers. But you can get it from any. Yeah, that's it on the back there. So you look at their website. Uh, you can get it from the dreaded Amazon. Dare I say it, it's all on there. Any good support your independent bookshops. I'm a big one for independent bookshops. So go into your independent bookshop and ask for Eric and Dave by Spencer Vignus by Pitch Publishing, and they'll be able to get it for you. I think Waterstones are having some issues. They always see that they they big themselves up as the big I am, and yet they can never seem to get hold of books. But ask. You can always ask. So, yeah, all the usual channels, basically. Hopefully you should be able to get it. And if you can't, have a go at them until they can stock it for you. I, I think that's a, a very good... Uh, a very when, good when I say have a go, I mean nicely. You know, <laughs> no, no, no pistols, no, you know, catapults, no you know, nasty stuff or whatever. You know, just, just give them a kind of, you know, give them a, a Paddington stare or whatever. That was a bit of a, a violent action for me. I meant nudge. Give them a nudge. Them a nudge. Yeah, don't, 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 don't use violence, people. Just a stare, just a stare. Yeah. And if, well, having said that, if they then say, oh, no, sorry, we can't stock it, whatever, then resort to violence by all means and tell them that I said it would be all right. Then you can leap over the counter and kind of do your worst. There you have it, folks. Spencer has given you permission. Um, <laughs> but check out his book, um, Eric and Dave. It is an absolutely fantastic read well worth it indeed so albion obsessed viewers and listeners don't forget to like share and subscribe for more content if you haven't done so already wherever you may be whenever you may be take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time